Commentary on Thus Spake Zarathustra, Book 1, Part 5, The Conclusion, on Little, Old, and Young Women. So here's Nietzsche's reprehensible take on women. As I mentioned earlier, the key thing to remember here first is that um, Zarathustra considered 98% of all people, uh, men, um, as sort of useless, uh, calls them biting flies, poison makers, uh, the vermin, the all too many. And he just felt that there's a few who could uh, rise above this, as it were, with, with effort and self-reflection and philosophy, they could make themselves better. He just thought that women could not do this. And so everything he writes here is within that context. And what's important to note is he's being very honest and straightforward about what was true for his society. Unfortunately, he could not overcome that. And if you look at his biography, it's pretty clear why. He was raised in a society that valued men above women. He was raised by sort of women who had nothing to offer him intellectually. He couldn't connect with them. He, you know, an all-boys school, all-boys college. Then he worked in an all-boys college, right? So he was in this sort of very male-dominated world where he almost had very limited interaction with uh, women. The one woman he really cared for was his sister, and she turned out to be a super, super ultra-fascist. And he just hated everything about her. He loved her, but he hated everything about her. And this partly explains his poisonous view of women. Um, the other thing that is important to note here is that he's also not wrong about women. I mean, he says, a woman is a riddle, the answer to which is get with child. Again, within his context of a society, when you had, and this is middle-class women, when you had middle-class educated women or, you know, the bourgeoisie, as it were, the emerging bourgeoisie, they really gave women no options for ways to pursue a life. And so their strategy, their best tactic, as it were, to be successful, quote-unquote successful, was to marry the best possible man. And then when you married the best possible man, you wanted to have a child because, in theory, that would bond them to you and make them responsible to you. And legally, it did, it did have this effect. So if you produced a, a child, there was a lot more strictures on the male than if you didn't. And for women without a husband, I mean, it was just not a very good uh, world to be in. So many, many women actually pursued precisely the kind of strategy that uh, uh, Nietzsche here is bemoaning. But again, he's simply blind to the notion that women, like uh, some women, like some men, could rise above this. And so, uh, you know, again, reprehensible, but also notice this, the clarity with which he addresses these issues. And it is the clarity that I think is important to remember here. While um, wrong and short-sighted, he does articulate those things about his society which many people did not want to articulate, right? That was sort of what I think was key, is he tried to make as clear as possible what he saw going on, and he was not wrong about that. What he was wrong about, again, was he undervalued women the same way his society did. So, you know, he had his limitations like we all do, and he puts them out here quite clearly, but within the context of his society, he is quite correct about what many, um, perhaps most women, were up to, and he could not see beyond that because he basically had almost no interaction with women that were helpful, uh, enriching, and, and life-fulfilling. He just, he just was not in that, was not part of his experience. On the bite of the adder. Uh, here's a m somewhat confusing one because it starts with this parable where uh, Zarathustra falls asleep and he's bitten by a poison snake and he wakes up 
and he tells the snake, uh, you know, you're not going to kill me because when does a snake ever kill a dragon and that you need to lick the, the poison back out of my wound. And then one day when Zarathustra was retelling this story to his disciples, they said, and what, O Zarathustra, is the moral of this story? And Zarathustra answered thus, the good and upright call me the destroyer of morals. My story is immoral. Ah, but if you have an enemy, do not repay his evil with good that would shame him. Rather, demonstrate that he has done something good for you. So here again, another assault on a, on a central Christian notion, which is turn the other cheek. Right? If someone harms you, you turn the other cheek. The meek shall inherit the earth. All this kind of uh, essentially nonsense that Nietzsche had little use for, appealing to the Greeks. The Greeks did not believe in turning the other cheek in any way, shape, or form. And of course, neither did the Romans or the Persians. So when you're looking back at classical sources, this is just nonsense of the first order. And so he says, well, what do you do instead? Well, he argues... One, what you can do is demonstrate that he has done something good for you, right? Appreciate what they've taught you, what you've learned. And rather than be angry, rather be angry than shamed. And if someone curses you, it pleases me not that you bless. Rather, join a little of the cursing. So don't internalize it, right? Don't take someone's wrong into you and feel shamed. Better to be angry and lash out. Of course, this is a complete reversal of what his society teaches. And he's, he just says, you know, don't internalize these wrongs. Just take them in because they're going to create resentment. He, and he writes about this in other places. He's very much concerned about the notion that people harbor this bitterness and it poisons them and they don't know what to do with it. And then it creates other problems and difficulties. You see this in the section on the pale criminal. He thought it was better if people were just more straightforward and honest. And if they're angry, lash out because you're angry rather than internalize it and feel shamed and feel bad about yourself. Um, and then he says, I do not like your cold justice. And from eyes of your judges, there gazed always the executioner in his cold steel. But tell me, where is the justice that sees with eyes of love? And find me the love that bears not only all punishment, but all guilt. Then find for me the justice that acquits everyone except the judge. Right? So who, again, you know, this is, you should be uh, tired of hearing this by now, I imagine. But he consistently returns to this, right? I'm interested in the judge that judges themselves. Forgives everyone else. Who cares about everyone else? Love them. See them. Understand them. And forgive, basically, or, or, or ignore. But who's the judge that would be the most cruel to themselves, the most harsh on themselves. That's what Nietzsche is interested in. That's the justice that he wants to pursue, the individual. Would you hear this also? For one who would be just from the ground up, even the lie becomes a friendliness to men. But how can I be just from the ground up? How can I give to each his own? Let this suffice for me. Give to each my own. Ah, again, what do I have? What do I understand? What do I know? Let me give that. That's how I can be just to other people. It's not, I'm not, I'm not telling them who they are. I'm not judging them in that sense. I'm not saying, oh, what I have, you have to have. You have to take. I'm saying, here's what I have if you want it. How can I give to each his own? Let this suffice for me. Give to each my own. See, so this, again, it's the same notion. It puts the burden on the person to know themselves. 
You're not about knowing other people. I mean, that's important too, but you're really focused on what do I have? What can I give? Let that suffice for me to give each what is mine. So that is, uh, again, the central focus on the individual against any sort of external right and wrong, against any sort of um, judgment that is beyond uh, the individual. And it goes, again, notice this is the individual is supposed to be the harshest on themselves. Love everyone else, be harsh to yourself. So again, it's this reversal of, oh, I'm a bad person, but let's love everybody else and turn the other cheek. No, 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 no. Right. So uh, important section to understand the, some of the themes that have already been introduced. On a child and marriage. <clears throat> and here uh, Nietzsche bounces back a bit to the themes of women that he's introduced before, but ah, now he's cast in a much more positive light. And this does develop a little bit. I don't want to, you know, sort of abrogate him of what he said before, but it does change somewhat here. And it's important to note this. He says, I have a question for all you, my brothers. I cast this question like a sounding line into your souls that I may know how deep it is. You are young and wish for a child in marriage. But I ask you, are you a man who has the right to wish for a child? Are you the victor, the self-directed, the master of your sense, the master of your virtues? So who should marry and who should have a child? And he says, marriage, this I call the will of two to create one that is more than the creators. Reverence for each other I call such a marriage, for those who will such a will. Ah, so what he thinks of is so he's not against marriage again. He's opposed to the types of marriages that he sees. He thinks when two people come together who are each trying to help the other become better and that if they have a child, they want the child to grow up to be better than they are themselves. He says, now that, that is something for which I have reverence. That is something for which I have respect. But that which the all too many, the teeming creature, ah, what of that? Okay, so for what he sees about him, he has no use at all. Ah, this poverty of soul in a couple. Ah, such filth of the soul in a couple. Such wretched contentment in a couple. Marriage, they call this, and they say that marriage is made in heaven. No, I like this not, this heaven of the masses. No, I like them not, these animals caught in a heavenly net. And may the God who limped up to bless what he did not bring together stay far away from me. Wow. So his indictment here is, again, you have to imagine his world where he sees the type of women that men are supposed to marry. They're supposed to be docile. They're supposed to be at home. They're supposed to, you know, maybe they're trying to arrange a marriage so that they have more wealth or they're trying to get a younger bride because she's attractive and, and you know, sexually alluring. And so he, what he sees is these marriages that are just for, as far as uh, Nietzsche is concerned, base motives. And that when two people come together for base motives, nothing good is going to come of this and certainly nothing good for the children. And he says, ah, what child does not have reason to weep for his parents? Now, that, think about that, right? The, you know, we all talk about, oh, the problems with parents and difficult upbringings, but he's just putting his finger right on it again. Uh, you know, what is it that we should be striving for? What kind of marriage should we be making? And are we sufficiently uh, self-fulfilling and the self-turning wheel that we should have children, right? It's a big responsibility. Can we live up to that? Can we deliver that? Can we have a partner that we help to be better and that they help us to be better? Um, and that, that 
sort of very high standard is, of course, why Nietzsche had difficulty with relationships, but also what he thought marriage should be and what he saw um, all too rarely was. And I think if we look around, one can see that, yeah, this is a not common sort of bond that one sees every day. And so that was his concern when he talks about on women, on children. He's not against marriage and he's not against uh, having children. He just thinks far too often it's done for the wrong reasons, with the wrong motives and sort of uh, for, for base uh, instincts and desires of which he has little or no use. On a free death. Oh, what a um, sort of painful section this is to read. Because if you don't know Nietzsche's biography, he uh, went insane and basically became um, completely, not comatose, but he, he just couldn't reason. He, he was out of his mind. He was docile. He wasn't violent or crazy or yelling, um, apparently, a little, every once in a while. But mostly he was just, uh, he became sort of a mindless vegetable. And so he lived many years longer than he was in control of himself which is precisely the point of this section on a free death. Many die too late and a few die too early. The teaching sounds odd, die at the right time. And so here he's trying to look death in the face and say, well, what does it mean to live and what does it mean to die? And his argument here is very clear and I think moving, particularly in the context of someone who was not able to fulfill this promise, to live a life such that our death will be a festival. And he even says this, thus one should learn to die and there should be no festival unless one dies consecrating the oaths of the living. So dying again is about being alive. To die thus is best, right? To die in a fulfilling moment with, with your powers uh, rising, with your achievements growing, this is what you should strive so for so that your death is a celebration and a joy um, and that we should think of it this way rather than something, as he points out, that we don't think about or we hide from or we think is mourning and terrible rather than something that is celebrated. Um, may a preacher come of quick death. For me, that would be the right storm and shaker of the tree of life. But I hear only slow death preached and patience with all earthly things. So again, this was his frustration. He talks about the preachers of death. He's bringing this back around again. He's seeing the preachers of death say, oh, life is not worth living. We just have to suffer through it. And then someday we die and then we'll get to a better place. And Nietzsche is just trying to reverse that again. He's saying, no, um, life is great and wonderful. And if you live it correctly, and if you do it correctly, then death is not the end of something terrible, but the celebration and achievement of something that was great. And then you're not worried about what comes after. And so, again, he's trying to reverse the entire moral uh, conception of his society around how they view death. And I think it is a, a fascinating idea to try and look at this and say, you know, wow, what do we want our deaths to achieve? Which is not something I think we tend to ask ourselves, but this is precisely what Nietzsche wanted to ask. He wanted, wanted us to ponder this so that he thought eventually this would be the biggest festival. In your dying, your spirit and virtue shall still glow like the, a sunset over the earth, or else your dying will have turned out badly. 
thus I myself would die, that you, my friends, might love the earth for my sake, and to the earth I will return, thus I might rest in the she who bore me. Truly, Zarathustra had a goal, he threw his ball, and you, my friends, are heirs to my goal, to you I throw my ball. More than anything, my friends, I like to see you throwing the golden ball, so I linger a little, linger a little on earth. Forgive me this. Right? Here's, my, here's my idea, here's my concept, here's my love, here's my glowing ball. I love to see my friends uh, try to understand and experiment, explore it. And so, you know, if I linger, forgive me, because I really do in, enjoy seeing this. But it's, it's a remarkable uh, attempt, again, to face directly what is rarely dealt with. And if, But of course, if you again read the classics, they tended to talk about and think about death a lot more clearly and succinctly. Not that they agreed about it, but they, they were much more willing to face it directly as a philosophical and ethical conception. And Nietzsche is carrying that tradition forward by kind of trying to reverse the entire narrative arc that his culture, and to a certain extent, I think our culture still tries to tell us. On the Bestowing Virtue Now we reach the conclusion of Book 1 of Thus Spake Zarathustra. And Zarathustra has been, many of these parables and moments have been happening around the town called the Motley Cow. So that's where the young man was on the hill and so forth. And now he's taking his leave of the people and his, his disciples are following him. And when he comes to the road leading out of the town where he's going to part from them, uh, his disciples handed him a staff, and on the haft of which was a sun with a serpent coiled around it. Again, the serpent has returned, that image of his animals. Zarathustra was pleased with the staff, leaned on it, and spoke to his disciples. Now, here's the, the, the concept of a bestowing virtue. How did gold come to have its greatest worth? Because it is uncommon and useless and glows with a mild luster. It always gives of itself. So he says gold is valuable. I, I don't think this is true at all, but gold is valuable because it gives. This is a metaphor for the bestowing virtue. It's useless, but it gives its golden light to everybody. The eye of the giver shines golden. The golden light makes peace between sun and moon. And here he makes an interesting distinction. Again, he's always making these distinctions not between actions per se, but before why people are performing them. So truly, I understand you, my disciples. You are striving, like me, for the bestowing virtue. What would you have in common with cats and wolves? Right? You want to go out in the world, and you want to, to take and make and create. And he says you want jewels and treasures and wealth and honor and all this. Why? If you have the bestowing virtue, it's because you're insatiable in your desire to give, to help, to um, provide. And he says that is the bestowing virtue and that is not a, a bad thing. This is not, you know, that kind of striving, that sort of thirst and that hunger is not uh, selfishness, as it were. However, there is another type, he says, which is the selfishness, which is all too poor, a starving one that always steals, the selfishness of the sick, a sick selfishness, right? This is the, the thief that steals. And so... When you're trying to give, you want to be filled so that you have something to give. And so then you're probably striving, you're probably searching, whatever it is you're, you're going for, this, this concept is okay. Now again, notice that in his society, that the notion of striving, of trying to get wealth, I mean, everybody was doing it, of course, but the society looked down on it. 
And he's like, again, like, no, it depends, right? If you're just trying to make yourself wealthy and you're sort of want to be Scrooge McDuck and pile up money to swim around in it, then yeah, you're a bastard. If you're making money to give away and to help and to bestow or knowledge or art, then no, that's good. That makes you someone who's striving in the right way. So this is a crucial distinction that he makes that, again, we, we try to say, oh, this action is wrong or that action is right. And he's like, well, it's more complicated to that. And of course, he returns to this theme of when you are willers of one will and this focusing of all need is called necessity, that is the origin of your virtue. Truly, this is the new good and evil, truly a new rushing in the depth and the void of a new source. This virtue is pure, it is a commanding thought. And around it a clean soul, a golden sun, all around it the serpent of knowledge. So he's invoking this, this sphere that they've just given him. The serpent now has become the serpent of knowledge. And he says, when you disdain all the good and evils of your society, what is easy, what is obvious, what is, you know, everybody goes with, and you start pursuing your own, ah, that's when you'll get the golden sun of the eye of the bestowing virtue, when you'll create from inside yourself and then you'll have this capacity to give, which is, of course, precisely where this narrative begins. It's ending where it begins. Zarathustra went in the mountains. He sat for 10 years and he filled up. He filled up with knowledge, golden knowledge like the sun. This imagery does repeat. It's the golden knowledge of the sun. He's filled with honey, um, like a comb with too much honey. He's like, I want to go out and give and bestow. It just turns out to be much harder than he thought it would be, of course, part of this narrative. And so here he's coming back to that and saying, when you have gone out, when you have found your own, when you have sought insatiably to uh, gather and create, then you will be able to give, then you will be the bestower, then you will have this uh, incredible opportunity and power. And then he pauses and he falls silent and he looks on with his disciples and he speaks and his voice was transformed, it says. Stay true to the earth, my brothers, with the power of your virtue, with your bestowing love and your understanding, serve the sins of the earth. This I plead and swear you. Again, he returns to this. The earthly, the human, the natural, uh, the worldly. Don't think of these metaphysical abstractions. Don't worry about heavens and hells and goods and evils. If you focus on your the, the the physical human the physical world rather than the concrete the internal the emotional is again this is not necessarily the rational it's the emotional the the visual the sensual that will help lead you to yourself and to this bestowing virtue this higher uh, sense of yourself that you seek and then through wisdom, the body purifies itself. With experiments and wisdom, it elevates itself. For the knower, all drives are holy. For the elevated one, the soul is joy joyful. And he has this amazing passage. Physician, heal thyself, and thus heal your patient as well. Let this be the best remedy, that one may see with his own eyes that one has made himself whole. So the best remedy is for you to be healthy. And then when other people see that you're healthy, this helps them. This is, again, it's always back to the individual with Nietzsche, that, that your main responsibility and your main way to help other people is to make yourself whole and well. Then you gain the bestowing virtue, as it were. Then you gain the insights that he's talking about. He says, thousands are the paths that have yet to be walked, a thousand hells and a thousand undiscovered kinds of life. Even now the human and the human earth is unknown and unexhausted. 
there is not one answer. There is not one way. There's a thousand ways. There's a thousand hells and there's a thousand undiscovered ways of living. So, you know, that's why he says that it, you can't answer these questions, yes or no, or right or wrong, or good or evil, because there's, there's too much there. There's too many opportunities within the human. There's too much diversity. There's too much capacities too, and too many varied capacities. And then finally, he says, in the, in, the, in the third section, he says, when Zarathustra said these words, he pauses as one who stands and has not said his last words. He pondered long, weighing the staff in his hand. Finally, he spoke thus, and his voice was transformed. Alone I go now, my disciples. Also, you must go alone. I, thus I will it. Truly, I counsel you from me and guard yourselves against Zarathustra, and better yet, be ashamed of him. Perhaps he has deceived you. Wow. So he's been saying, don't, you know, think for yourself, go instant. And finally he says, look, here's the best thing to do. Forget what I've said, or, or even better yet, be ashamed of me because perhaps I've misled you. You need to ask yourself that. Have I not led you astray? This is a very rare thing in philosophy. You know, Montaigne does something like this sort of in his structure because he sort of wanders around and changes his mind on the fly. But you don't see too much, and certainly not in Nietzsche's time, where someone just stops and says, you know what, I probably just misled you. You should probably be ashamed of what I've been teaching you. You need to go away, think for yourself, and, and then see what comes. See what returns to you. See what is yours. See which one of those thousands and thousands of undiscovered lives are the one for you, and then we'll see. And then, and he says, and once more you shall become my friend and children of one hope. Then I will be with you a third time and celebrate the great midday with you. And it is the great midday when mankind stands on the path between beast and overman and celebrates its way to the evening of its highest hope. This is the way to a new morning. That day the ones who have gone under will bless themselves that they will be a new going over and a son of his understanding will stand at midday for him. Dead are all the gods now. Now we want the overman to live. May this be the great midday, our ultimate will. Thus spake Zarathustra. And so he's, he, a couple of things going on here. One is the go out, find your own. And when you do find your own, then we'll be together again. Then I'll return for a third time. Once before he went to the mountains, once after he came out of the mountains, and then he'll come back. Of course, th there's more books. And so this turns out to be more than three times. And he, when will he return? He'll return when we're beginning to celebrate our path to the overman. Again, he doesn't say when we arrive at the overman. He doesn't say, oh, I'll be back when the end goal is achieved. No, he says when we get to a place where we're sort of halfway, when the sun is at midday, then, then I'll come because then we'll really be on our way. So again, Zarathustra isn't claiming to be the overman or even describing or, or, or claiming what the overman is in any clear sense. He's saying, however, if you go out and search, I'm going to go away and go my own, own, own time and have my own reflections. And then when we come back together, ha hopefully then, then we'll be halfway. Then we'll be further along the path to our ultimate goal. Let that be our one willing. So it's a very remarkable way to end a philosophical narrative to suggest that, A, don't listen to me, be ashamed of me, I've probably misled you. Uh, B, I'm going to return at some point after you've come to your own ideas and your own concepts, then we'll come back together. 
And when we do that, we're not going to have reached the conclusion. We're not going to be done. We're just going to be further on the path. Thus spake Zarathustra. So it's a great invocation, again, of the individual uh, and, and, the, and, and the sort of importance of the individual's finding and seeking their own. Thus concludes the commentary. Uh, thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. Again, this is the rough draft. There'll be a more polished version and text coming uh, eventually. And now with the new year, I hope everybody has a good 2021. Um, I'll be beginning the translation of book two. I hope this finds you well and searching on your own path. Thank you very much.